I'm Pastor Chris Yops. I'm the children and family pastor. And this morning, I have the opportunity um, to share on week four of our five-week series on financial fitness, matters of the heart. And I can tell you that this passage we're going to look at this morning from Luke chapter 14 is just a perfect passage for this series because we find in this passage um, just some real practical, simple, time-honored principles for financial management. But Jesus also challenges us in this passage about a super important matter of the heart. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this message from your word. May we give this the attention and consideration it deserves. Father, may your spirit open our ears and our hearts and allow me to communicate with clarity and conviction. Father, we are gathered in Jesus' name. May this word have your every intended effect in each one of our lives, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before I dive in uh, to the passage, I'd like to briefly give you a little bit of my background with money and finances. Um, When I was in high school, probably like most kids, um, I usually had a job all through high school, but it was never to pay for my wants, it was always to pay for, or it was never to pay for my needs, it was always to pay for my wants, right? Like I, I wanted a little bit nicer clothes, um, wanted a little nicer shoes, I uh, wanted to have money to hang out with my friends, and so um, I had a job, but it was kind of like my wants account. And that, that pattern continued through college and then even graduate school, where I almost always had a job, but it was only to help pay for my wants, not for my needs. And, um, and, and so I left home not really understanding or appreciating the value of a dollar, if that makes sense. And that didn't really change much until my mid-20s. When I was 24, I met Michelle, and we fell in love. And a year later, we got married, and we had this huge over-the-top wedding reception that her parents paid for. And then uh, we went on this amazing honeymoon uh, to a couple of the Hawaiian Islands. And uh, that's in my wants account, all of it paid for that. And then um, I remember coming back and having our first night together, you know, back home in a new apartment and we're together and we're going to have dinner. And I'm super excited because Michelle's mom is full on Italian. Michelle is half Italian. They both really know how to cook, if you know what I mean. So um, I'm really anxious, not not anxious, I'm just excited to be able to have dinner together, have a delicious meal. And we sit down and we have our card table and we have our camping chairs. And I remember that night we had ravioli, two cans of Chef Boyardee ravioli. And, and that was precisely uh, when I realized that I needed to figure out this financial planning thing. And you know what? I think we've all been there, right? We've all had that aha moment when we realized, hey, I need to get my finances under control. You know, maybe a few of the younger ones in, in the room today haven't been there, but the rest of us have been there. So let's take a look at what Scripture has to say on the subject uh, in the next few minutes this morning. Um, if you could stand together with me. Uh, We're going to read Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. I was told after first service, I'm I'm, uh, reading out of the ESV, and I guess what's on the screen is a little bit different version, very similar, but a little bit different, so I apologize for that. Um, But it's Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You may be seated. Well, in this passage, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And that should ring a bell for us. Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem. And everywhere he goes, it seems like great crowds are gathering around. Everybody wants to see Jesus. Everybody wants to hear Jesus teach. It's as if everybody wants to follow Jesus. But Jesus knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. And Jesus knows the trials and persecutions that await his followers after he's gone. And he uses strong language here because he's making a point that he doesn't want his followers to minimize. He wants to drive home a truth that for some might lay so far outside their set of assumptions and expectations that they miss it altogether. And to make this point, he uses short stories and metaphors as he often did. You know, here, for example, he takes principles from resource management, time-tested, legitimate principles that were widely accepted and widely understood in his day, and he uses them to teach his audience something about being a true disciple, which they didn't understand. So Jesus alludes to financial management, but he's not really teaching about financial management. Does that make sense? You guys following along with me? Okay, he's, teaching, he's drawing upon that as a metaphor, but that's not exactly what he's teaching about. But since Jesus saw fit to draw upon these principles precisely because they were so time-tested, so widely accepted, so well understood, they deserve our attention. They are just as legitimate and practical today as they were 2,000 years ago, even if they aren't maybe as widely practiced today as they used to be. Um, so as part of our financial uh, fitness series, let's take a good look at these financial principles, but then let's circle back and consider Jesus' main point on the cost of being a true disciple. Okay, in the middle of the passage we just read, Jesus says this, starting in verse 28. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate? whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. 
So in the first scenario, Jesus talks about a person, probably a farmer, um, who's planning to build a tower, which might be a simple watchtower or, or it might be some type of structure to hold his grain. But Jesus points out that before he begins actual construction, he sits down and counts the cost. He sits down, time out, he sits down and he counts the cost. These words in Greek convey a sense of methodical, serious deliberation. Now, interestingly, he does this because he realizes that if he begins to build, and then at some point, even with all his financial resources, he's not able to finish, he will face the ridicule and scorn of his friends and neighbors. And that's probably hard for us to fully appreciate what that meant to his original audience, because his original audience was part of an honor-based culture. To people back then, honor meant everything. Like to be held in high esteem by your, by your friends and neighbors. And to lose honor was to lose everything. Now the next story is similar, but a little different. A king discovers that an enemy army is marching toward his kingdom. And the king doesn't just impulsively command, send out all the troops, right? No, it says that he sits down and he deliberates whether he has the military resources to counter the advancing army. Okay, this situation is not in the distant future. This situation is forced upon him suddenly. But even so, the king must sit down and deliberate whether even if he uses all his military resources, he has enough to counter the opposing army. And here again, the consequences of failure are severe. So Jesus is drawing upon some time-tested concepts of wise resource management and planning for the future that were widely accepted and widely understood in his day. And these short stories illustrate at least three basic steps of financial fitness. Now you could summarize it like this. If we are going to successfully navigate our financial journey, we need to remember our GPS. Okay, and that's just a little acronym I made up to help us remember these steps, okay? So if we're going to successfully navigate our financial journey, we need to remember our GPS. We need to identify our goals, we need to have a plan, and we need to defer gratification to save. Okay, let's take a quick look at each of these steps. All right, setting goals, setting goals. Setting goals involves identifying and prioritizing our needs and wants, both for the near and distant future. Let me say that again. Setting goals involves identifying and prioritizing our needs and wants, both for the near and distant future. Now, maybe you're thinking, I'd like to go to college someday. Or maybe you're thinking, I'd love to move out of this tiny apartment and, and move into a house. Maybe you're thinking, you know, someday I'd love to be a more generous giver. Or maybe I'd love someday to be able to afford to eat a little healthier. Maybe someday I'd love to have a vehicle that didn't leave a little puddle of oil everywhere I park. I've been there. I don't know if any of you guys have been there. Okay, well, these, these, shouldn't, be just, these shouldn't be just dreams, okay? These, these things should be written down and prioritized as financial goals. Every summer for the last several years, I've taken my boys um, up to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area in northern Minnesota, and um, imagine over one million acres of virgin Northwoods country, you know, backcountry, and almost 1,200 lakes. This is not car camping, okay? This is like where you come to a trailhead, 
and you have to hike in, and you have your canoe on your shoulders, and you have all your stuff that you're carrying, and you got to go maybe a quarter mile, maybe a half a mile to get to the lake, and it's sometimes a really vigorous hike. I'm not talking about like a sidewalk, right? I mean, this, is, this will make you sweat. This will make you wonder, where's the lake? <laughs> so you're hiking in, you get to the first lake, you put down your canoe, you put all your stuff in it, and then you paddle across the lake to the other side. Then you've got to get all your stuff out of the canoe, throw the canoe back on your shoulders, get all the stuff on your back, and then you've got to hike again to the next lake, and then repeat and repeat until you find a campsite in a location that you want. So once you get to your campsite, there's no going back until the trip's over. You know, in terms of your gear and your food, you have what you brought and nothing more. It's like what the Boy Scouts used to say, or maybe they still say it, right? You've got to be prepared. Um, I recently read a story about another father who took his sons to the Boundary Waters every year, and now they're in college, and this past summer, they took their first trip on their own, you know, without an older adult. And so once they got back, the father heard about all the adventures that they had. And one thing that happened on the trip is that the kids got there, and they unpacked all their stuff, and they realized as they looked at everything that they had brought three days' worth of food for a seven-day trip, right? And that's exactly what we don't want to happen to us in life. Now, if I'm honest, the planning for the trip is one of the aspects that I find most exciting, you know, because you don't want to forget anything essential, but you can't bring absolutely everything in the kitchen sink or you'll be doing nothing but hauling your gear, you know, there and back. And so you've probably heard, you know, people say half the fun of a vacation, half the fun of a vacation is the planning and the anticipation. And I think it's true. You know, and it can be true for the important things that we plan for in life as well. You know, if, we're going to successful, um, if we're going to be successful on the financial journey, we could benefit from that same mentality that emphasizes the importance of identifying important needs and wants and planning ahead and enjoying the process a little bit because this is an area of life where God can really stretch our faith if we let him. So I'd encourage you, sit down, maybe even today, Sit down with your spouse and make a list of your future needs and wants. And pray about this. Let God be a part of the process from step one. Prioritize the list in terms of greatest needs and greatest wants, keeping in mind kingdom values. And, re and remember, you're never in this alone because God wants us to be good managers, good managers of all that he's given us, both things of this world and things of the kingdom of heaven but he always wants to do this in light of our new identity and calling in Christ. So I challenge you, even if you've done this before, prayerfully make a list of your significant wants and needs for the future and prayerfully prioritize them. Okay, it's an important first step for each of us to successfully navigate our financial journey. Okay, next, we need to have a plan or a budget. A budget includes all your monthly expenses, both sporadic and reoccurring, and it also includes those line items for, for the goals you hope to meet for the future. And these absolutely should include the ways you want to share and be generous to others in need and to support kingdom values and initiatives. And as I mentioned earlier, the planning and budgeting and, and with all of these concepts, it can get pretty technical. And maybe you feel like you need a lot, you know, you need a little bit more help. Um, I'm just kind of able to give an overview this morning. Um, but there's a lot of resources out there. You know, for example, as a church, we offer the Financial Peace University class once or twice a year. Excellent resource. Um, if you have kids and you're wanting to teach them some resources and help them apply some of this stuff, 
There's a website called famzoo.com, F-A-M-Z-O-O.com. Excellent resource. Thank you, Rachel Dadavo, for first tipping me off to that. But there's a lot of other good ones out there. So um, just to know, you know, if you need a resource, you know, the, the help is out there. Just Google it or come talk to me or one of the other pastors. But to su- suffice to say for now that making and keeping a budget is essential to successfully navigating the financial journey. And of course, there's apps out there and elaborate spreadsheets and different resources. But what Michelle and I have found works the best for us is what, what we have done is called the envelope system. This is very simple. <laughs> this is where you have an envelope for each of your categories of expenses, like an actual em- envelope, not an app. I'm talking about like you would fill, send mail in old style with the stamp. Okay, an envelope. We have envelopes, one for each of the categories in our budget, all right? And like let's say there's uh, the grocery envelope. And if we've decided in our budget that our family needs $600 of groceries a month and I get paid twice a month, then from each of those paychecks, we take $300 and put it in the grocery envelope. And when we need to buy groceries, then we'd look in the grocery envelope and take you know, what we have and then what we don't use for groceries and put it back. And so we have different envelopes for different categories, like you know, for example, um, clothing, gas, dentist visits, vacations, gifts, things like that. So we have to prioritize these because if there's not enough to fund all of them, we have to decide which ones get funded first. But, but we have found that actually holding that literal money in our hands, you know, and then maybe sometimes looking at that empty envelope, it helps us to keep our spending in line with our budget, keep our spending in line with our plan. So that's one way that you can approach it. But just find a way that works for you, that's convenient for you, that, and that you can keep track of your spending and keep within your plan. Okay, whether your income is relatively little and you hope that you're going to have more to manage someday, or maybe your income is just ginormous and you want to make sure that your money is having its maximum impact, um, or maybe you're somewhere in the middle, um, wherever you're at with, with your income, and you need a budget. Okay, So that's the second step, make a budget. Finally, we see that if we are going to successfully navigate our financial journey, we need to save. S-A-V-E. And that is a four-letter word for some of us, I know, right? Because savings, saving almost always involves saying no to ourselves now in order to have money to afford something we want or need later, right? And it's hard to say no to ourselves. We don't like saying no to ourselves. And not only that, but we have to be patient because our savings doesn't accumulate overnight. We know in the 60s they did a study on self-control and deferred gratification in kids, called the marshmallow test or the marshmallow study super cool they um, basically would put a kid alone put a child alone in a room with a marshmallow and they tell the child you can eat that marshmallow or you can wait 10 minutes until the researcher returns and if you haven't eaten your marshmallow you'll get a second marshmallow and then you can eat both well this research just produced tons of interesting uh, observations but also tons of hilarious videos and I can tell you that um, not much has changed in the last 60 years. Um, let's take a quick look at this modern recreation. The Marshmallow Test is a psychology experiment from the late 1960s designed by a guy called Walter Michelle. The idea is you give young children a marshmallow and say you can eat it straight away or if you don't eat it and hold on for 10 minutes, you can get a second marshmallow. It's all about delayed gratification. And Michelle said that those people who are good at the marshmallow test went on to have 
more successful lives. Now we're going to see whether the test works just as well with children of our own generation. We've got Celia who is six and we've got B who is four. I'm going to give you a marshmallow. If you want, you can eat this straight away or you can wait for a bit until I come back into the room and you'll get a second marshmallow. Okay? I'll leave it up to you. I'm going to leave the room for a bit. Bye-bye. Okay, girls, how did you do? You haven't eaten yours. <laughs> and what happened to yours, B? Where is it? Well, oh, it's there in your tummy. Is it? So you couldn't wait for another one. So you, as a reward, get another marshmallow. What do you think of that? <laughs> Tasty. So you may have caught what the reporter said, that in the original study, those kids who exerted self-control and deferred gratification, which was about one of every three kids, they went on to be more successful in life in almost every measurable way. Isn't that amazing? But the study also revealed that self-control can be learned. Self-control can be learned, and so there's hope for all of us. But seriously, let's remember that patience and self-control are both fruits of the Spirit. In all areas of life, including our finances, let's not be impulsive or short-sighted. Let us make a habit of finding joy and saying no to ourselves. And with our finances, this will almost certainly result in greater savings. And Jesus wants us, like I said, to be responsible kingdom-minded managers of all he has given us, including our money. He wants us to be givers, to be responsible managers, and to be generous givers in a variety of contexts, including but not limited to church. So to summarize, um, to be good managers, to be generous givers, to be successful on our own um, financial journeys, we need to keep in mind 
these, these time-tested common-sense principles of financial management. We need to identify our goals. We need to have a plan, and we need to de defer gratification in order to save. Okay, and now, in these last few minutes, I'd like to return to the important point that, uh, about the kingdom of God that Jesus is making in this passage as a whole. Okay, remember Jesus makes reference to principles of financial planning in order to teach us something about discipleship. That's his main point. And we're going to switch gears a little bit here. I just want you to be ready for this because we've been talking about some practical principles that you can apply to finances, right? And that's super important and, and great. But now we're going to talk about our hearts a little bit more. We're really going to zero in on our hearts and the cost of discipleship because Jesus is making a super important point here. And if we look at what Jesus said before and after the portion of Scripture we considered, you know, that, that where he was referring to kind of resource management, if we look at what else he said, Jesus made some claims about the cost of being a true disciple that almost certainly left his original audience a little shell-shocked. In fact, it probably leaves us feeling a little bit the same way today. In verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then in verse 33, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, if these statements get your attention and make you ask yourself, why is Jesus speaking in such extreme terms? Um, it's because that was part of his intended effect. And honestly, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, not to say that someone who reads this carefully and is, you know, familiar with the rest of the New Testament and can bring some other uh, scriptural context to bear, you know, it's, it, there's a meaning here that's there to be seen, but there's also a lot to unpack. You know, like, for example, that phrase, to hate your father and mother, that phrase in the Greek closely remembers, resembles a Hebrew phrase that can actually mean to love less than. And there's just a lot of literary device and, and cultural context and scriptural context to bring to bear. So there's a lot to unpack here. And unfortunately, um, in this message, in the, in the few minutes that we have left, I'm not going to be able to, to unpack it the way it probably deserves. So if it's okay with you, I'd just like to cut to the chase, okay? I'd like to share or summarize the reality about discipleship that I believe that Jesus is trying to teach us in this passage. And that is, okay, the reality Jesus is teaching us, if we are going to follow him, the truth he is saying that we have to come to terms with, the truth to which we have to say yes or no, is that if we want to follow him, we have to give him our heart. And we can't give him just a part of our heart. At least that's not what I read here. We have to give him the whole thing. He must be first. He must be highest. He must be most. And Jesus deserves to be first. He deserves to be highest. He deserves to be most. Jesus is worthy of your whole heart. And he isn't going to force you. Your heart is something you have to give. But Jesus wants to be clear here that if you are going to be a true disciple, this is a requirement. And what does that look like? 
Well, it probably looks a little different for each of us. But if Jesus has your heart, if Jesus has your heart, if he really has the whole thing, then he has your money. And he has your time. He has your dreams. He has your hopes. He has your strengths. He has your weaknesses. He has all of you because he has your heart and that's how love works. Remember when you fell in love with your husband or wife? Ooh, it's still kind of early this morning, Chris. Okay, think back. And I, hopefully you're in love today still. But, you know, just remember when you were like in love, right? It was kind of a consuming emotion. Who did you think about all the time? Who would you have done anything for? See, when Jesus has our whole heart, we are set apart for him. We are set apart for him both in our affections and in the actions that naturally follow. See, if he has our heart, we will joyfully obey what he has commanded. And we will naturally trust what he teaches us. And, and do you know what that makes us? What that makes us by definition, if we are set apart for him? That means we're holy. That means we're holy. We're set apart for him. And do you know what else that means? If our actions follow from that set-apartness, if, if our actions align with our heart and we obey Jesus, that's worship. That's true worship. Well, Jesus is asking each of us, if in this passage, he's asking each of us if we are ready to give him our heart. And as Brad and the worship team come up, I want you to think about whether you will make that commitment this morning. And I'm going to give you a chance in a minute to respond. Now, maybe this is something that you've already done. But maybe you've never really thought about it in these terms before. And you want to make that declaration that with God's help, and that's a super important part of this because this is not something any of us can do in our own strength. But maybe you want to make that declaration that with God's help, you intend to give Jesus the rightful place in your heart that he would be first, that he would be highest, that he would be most. You know, he loves you. He loves you and he's saying to you, come and follow me. But he also wants to be straight with us. He wants us to know that it's going to require everything. So if you want to tell Jesus, yes, yes, Lord, with your help, I want to give you everything. I want to give you my whole heart today and for the rest of my life. If that's you, and this is just between you and God, but if that's you, I would, I would encourage you to stand. I would encourage you to stand just to say, yes, Lord, I want to respond to this. I want to say today and for the rest of my life, with your help, I want you to have my whole heart. If that's you, then I just encourage you to stand. tell you that this is a challenge that was put to me about 30 years ago. And I remember standing, except the guy forgot to say, you need to do it with God's help. <laughs> so I stood all passionate and full of zeal and, you know, it's not always easy, but that made a huge difference in my life. I can tell you that my life has never been the same since. 
so if you feel that God is speaking to you this morning and you want to respond and say, Lord Jesus, I just I do want to give you my whole heart. I just encourage you to stand. Just to stand quietly. God, but don't stand unless you mean it. It's better not to stand if, if you're not sure. Well, Father, I want to thank you for what you've done here among us this morning. Father, help us to grow in the knowledge of your will as we grow in love. Father, help us to encourage one another to stay strong, to stay focused, and to keep you first in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would help our lives to be so compelling that those around us become won over and convinced about the goodness and rightness of following Christ. And I ask that in Jesus' name.